Well, good morning, church. It's good to be back together. I encourage you to grab a Bible, turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 13, as we near the end of our study of the book of Hebrews. I, I want to draw your attention to something else this morning before we jump into Hebrews. Um, I think it would be negligent of me to overlook or to not mention uh, the things that are happening in our world around us this last 10 days or so, however long it's been since uh, the attack on Israel by um, Hamas. Uh, there's all kinds of turmoil and unrest, obviously, in the Middle East, but, but even broader than that. And I wanted to take the opportunity to just talk to us about that. If you are aware, if you watch any news at all, or if you have the internet at your house, you're probably aware of what's been happening um, with the war in Israel and, uh, and Gaza. And I just think it's important for us to, to acknowledge um, the events that are happening. So um, you'll be happy to know I've identified the Antichrist and I know all the events and what's going to happen and the timeline for which they're going to happen. So just kidding. Um, if you're new, you might be tempted to leave right now. I was just joking. I say it jokingly because that tends to be what some people do in these times is they want to put a label on everything and everyone and they want to, to add it to their timeline and be able to delineate what and when and how and where. And as I read the Bible, especially those passages which speak of end times events, the things that are most significant are when Jesus talks about in the end there'll be wars and rumors of wars and famines and earthquakes in various places. And he says, do not be afraid. He doesn't say figure out which one means what and figure out what comes next. He says, do not be afraid. And I think in our world right now, there are lots of people who are very afraid. They've heard bits and pieces of what might happen, and they don't know what might happen next. Obviously, there are um, all kinds of atrocities that could make this even worse. And for many people, they don't have hope, they don't have assurance, they don't have hope beyond the grave, and they're afraid. And we as Christians need to live out the hope that we say we have, that is that Jesus will return, that he will make all things right, that he will collect his own to himself and we will live with him in peace forever. We need to live that out through the way that we approach these events. We need to demonstrate a, a, a fearlessness to our neighbors and our coworkers. We need to demonstrate a hope in the certainty of God's promise. And that's my first concern. The other concern that I have is related, and that is when you hear of these things, when you, when you see on the news or whatever source of information you get your information from, obviously it's, it's tragic and it's horrible that people are dying, but it's a reminder to us that we live in a fallen world. There is sin everywhere. And sin manifests itself in all sorts of ways, and some of them are very painful to watch. No one should be murdered. No one should have their life cut short by ruthless people or even by the, the catastrophe of war. And yet it happens. And I just was reminded this week of a passage of scripture where some people came to Jesus during his ministry and they said, Jesus, what about that time when uh, the worshiper's blood was mingled with the sacrifice by Pilate? I mean, this, I don't know when it happened, but at some point it happened that these worshipers came and they were going to offer sacrifices to God and Pilate had them killed and he had their blood mingled with the sacrificial blood that they were going to bring before God. It's a horrible event. And these people come to Jesus probably because they expect Jesus to be sympathetic towards them. And they expect Jesus to, to look with them against Pilate and to, you know, start a revolution or something. And Jesus looks at this crowd and says, do you think those people were worse sinners than any of you? I tell you the truth, if you do not repent, you also will perish. That's a really hard message to hear. 
It's not one that, that lands softly on our modern sensibilities. I don't think it did on theirs either. Jesus would most certainly be canceled if he tweeted that in our world today. But that was Jesus' response. He says to them and to us, the reality is we live in a fallen world and every single one of us will die. Some will die young, some will die old, some will die peacefully in their beds, and some will die at the hands of ruthless people. But every one of us will die, and it is incumbent upon us to heed the warnings of God about eternity and to embrace the promise that he gives us in the Lord Jesus Christ. For the last 2,000 years, God has been offering a peace treaty to the world to come to his son and to find peace, to embrace the, the gospel message and receive salvation, to be at peace with the God of heaven, and yet the world continues to reject that peace treaty. There will come a time in our world when Jesus will return and he will make all things right. He will crush his enemies and he will establish a kingdom one more thing I want to draw your attention to. I think it would be negligent of us as students of the Bible to not consider what's happening in the Middle East as significant. Again, I don't want to start putting labels on things. I don't want to start assigning prophecies to specific events, but I will say this that from the beginning of time, God has chosen a people to be his own. And he has called the nation of Israel to be his chosen people. And I don't see anywhere in scripture where he stops choosing them. In fact, if God stops choosing them, then maybe he can also stop choosing us. And so I think when we hear of these things, more so than when we hear of Ukraine and Russia or some other skirmish in Africa or in other parts of the world, this should cause our ears to perk up. The nations surrounding Israel are coming together in an unprecedented way. And their stated goal is to annihilate them. That's not new. That's been the stated goal of many others who have come before, but it should cause our Bible study ears to perk up. Not in fear, not in sensationalism, but in the sense that we're looking for our Savior to draw nigh. Get your life in order, church. Get right with the Lord. Make use of every opportunity for the time is getting shorter. I can say that with absolute certainty. Let me read for us a portion from Romans that I think is appropriate for us to hear, and then we'll pray and jump into Hebrews. Romans chapter 11, verse 25, Paul says, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers." For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray.
Father in heaven, we come before you this morning through the blood of Jesus. It's because of him that we can come, and it's because of him that we do come. And we beseech you, Lord, to be kind and be merciful in the midst of these horrible things that are happening in our world. We pray, Lord, that you would raise up workers in those devastated places that would be willing to risk their own lives to share the gospel with those who desperately need to hear it. We pray, Lord, that you would protect the innocent, the small, the the children, the elderly, those who cannot defend themselves, Lord, watch out for them. But I pray most of all that you would cause this angst and this fear to, uh, to make people look towards you, to make people humble themselves and consider eternity. We pray, Lord, for your people, your people Israel who are hardened for the moment. They're being trampled on by the Gentiles until the end is complete. But we trust and we know that your promises will be fulfilled, that all Israel will be saved, that you have a remnant and you will redeem a remnant. And in that is our hope as well, Lord, that you have called us your people and we know that your promises are irrevocable and so we trust that you will see us through to the very end. May your will be done and may we be ever ready and vigilant in these days. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hebrews chapter 13. Last week we touched on the topic that we'll look at more fully today the topic, the subject of spiritual leadership. The author has been very concerned throughout these 12 plus chapters, 12 and a half, 13 chapters, to, to hold up the Lord Jesus. And rightly so, it is our message. It is the core of what we believe and who we are. We are followers of Jesus. And as the letter is coming to an end, it's clear that the author, even as you're just reading it, it's clear that he is wrapping up his thoughts. It's clear that he is winding down his message and he's about to tie it off and be done altogether. But in these closing verses, he brings up the idea of leaders three times. He speaks of those who were your leaders, past tense, in verse 7, which we looked at last week briefly. And then in verse 17, he charges them to do certain things to their, for their present leaders. And then at the end of the book, verse 24, he says, greet all your leaders and all the saints. He's drawing their attention to this unique relationship that they have with these spiritual leaders that God has placed in their life. Spiritual leadership is not uh, something that they thought up. It's not something that they came up with on their own. It's not something even that the apostles came up with. Spiritual leadership is by God's design, as it's been mapped out from the beginning, God has set over his people always and forever leaders to guide them and to shepherd them and to care for them. It says in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, that Jesus gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith. This was Jesus's idea. That's why he drew men to himself and called them disciples and later apostles and then eventually sent them out to continue the ministry that he started in Galilee. This was always God's plan, that as he is redeeming a people to himself, as he is building up this spiritual body of believers known as his family, that he does so by means of spiritual leadership. I remember as a young Christian reading through the Bible for the first time, and I read the book of Judges, and I remember reading that line, uh, there was no leader in Israel at the time, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And in my naivety and in my immaturity, I thought, oh, that's great. Everyone just did what was right in their own eyes. I read it as though that was a good thing. And I've grown up since then, and I've been called to be a pastor. 
And the last thing in the world I would want for this church or for any church is that everyone would do what was right in their own eyes. That's an indictment on the people of Israel in the days of the judges. And it's, it's attached to the idea, the concept that there was no king in Israel. There was no spiritual leader to guide them. And so as a result, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And as a result, you can read the book of Judges and learn that's not a good thing. Spiritual leadership has always been God's design. It's manifested in the family through husbands and wives and children. It's manifested in the church through apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors. This is God's design, and it has been from the beginning. I recognize that in our world, in our especially westernized American culture, we have trust issues. The world in which we live has trust issues. All of us, all of us deal with this. All of us have our own level of trust issues. I imagine that when you click on whatever source of information you get your information from, that you don't just assume everything they're telling you is gospel truth. You go to any major news organization and you know by now that they have some sort of bent or angle, they have some sort of agenda that they're trying to push and they want you to accept. They say things that are true, kind of. They leave out certain facts or details because they don't want you to conclude certain things. It is a, a master class in manipulation, and all of us are subject to it every single day. And over time, what that leads to is all of us have trust issues. It's not just the news, though. Every one of us are subject to this when we go out into the world, when you go to a store, when you go to a mall, and you pass by a store, and there's advertisements in the window. They are enticing you to come in and buy from their store. I've never passed by a window shop and looked at their signs and had them advertise for the, the business next door. They never say, our cakes are good, but theirs are better. You should buy theirs. Because ultimately what they are interested in is for you to spend your dollars at their store so their business can profit. In a sense, that's not wrong. It's just that everyone is biased. And all kinds of forms of manipulation take place to garner your attention. We'll translate that into the spiritual realm, into spiritual leadership. I recognize that even preaching a sermon like this uh, makes me subject to all kinds of people's suspicions. Why is he saying that? What's he saying that about? Who's he referring to with that? Well, you'll just have to get over it and just listen, because I'm not going to say, I just want to tell you what the Bible says. Why do you say that? Why wouldn't you say this? I, don't, I can't live that life. I don't know. <clears throat> As Americans with trust issues, this manifests in our spiritual churches, in our, our communities of believers. Probably you have been lied to by someone in a place of spiritual leadership or you've been mistreated or abused on some level, you've been neglected by someone in a place of spiritual leadership and it causes you to be suspicious and even cynical when you look at someone in one of those positions. I don't know exactly what was going on in the book of Hebrews and why the author needs to make mention three times of their leaders. But we can say this, when he says in verse seven, remember your leaders, those who spoke, past tense, the word of God, uh, consider the outcome, the kind of the overarching way of life that they lived and imitate their faith. Everything about this verse and the way that it's written makes us, leads us to conclude that these leaders are no longer around. They were there and these people knew them and they benefited greatly probably from their ministry but maybe these leaders are now gone. They've grown old and they've died and they've passed off the scene. Or maybe they've been persecuted and now they're separated from them through persecution or who knows what. But the author says, remember them, the ones who spoke to you the word of God, 
consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And then in verse 17, he says, obey your leaders and submit to them. So the writer is writing to these people that are in between leaders who have passed on and leaders who are currently over them. And probably, like in, their, like in our context, as it is in theirs, it's difficult when there's a transfer of leadership. When the old guard has moved on and the new guard steps into their role. It's difficult. It's hard to pass your trust on from these people who have been with you for so long, who you've trusted and loved and been ministered to, to the new younger crowd who really don't know what they're talking about yet. And this author maybe sees a need to draw their attention to their spiritual responsibilities to these leaders who are above them. He says in verse 8, a a verse that is extremely important, not just for the theology that it gives us about Jesus, but practically for this very idea of spiritual leadership. Remember those who ministered to you in the past, the word of God, consider their life and imitate their faith, but they're gone now. And then he says in verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever Jesus is the one that those leaders led you to. Jesus is the one that they pointed to. Jesus is the one that they modeled their life after. And now they're gone, but Jesus remains. There is an important and valuable lesson in this church that every spiritual leader you have will either die or be moved away. But Jesus Christ who died for you and rose again victorious and ascended back into heaven and sat down on the throne of God at the right hand of God, he remains forever. Hebrews has already reminded us and told us plainly that Jesus is there in heaven interceding for us. He is there as a high priest ministering to God on our behalf. He's not there separated from us. He's there thinking about us and praying for us. So we as sheep, we look to leaders, but then those leaders move away. But if our eyes are ultimately on Christ, then we're not shaken in the midst of that. These leaders were valuable to them. They brought the word of God to them. They spoke the word of God to them, which is the the primary uh, job description of a spiritual leader. To minister the word of God to God's people. Like Jesus said to Peter when he restored him after that great fall at the end of the Gospels, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And then jumping down after he talks about the work of Jesus and the suffering of Jesus and he calls us to participate with him in all of that. Then he brings us to verse 17. And he says, obey your leaders and submit to them. And I'll admit to you, even as I read that, and I've read it dozens of times this week, even as I read it, I know that there's something inside of you that, that kind of wells up and your, your fists start to clench and you start to tip your head and wonder, where's he going with this? Because as Americans especially, as humans, but as Americans particularly, we love our individualism. We love our sense of freedom. And nothing smacks of a loss of freedom like someone saying you have to obey somebody. That's what children do. But I'm a grown man, I don't have to obey anybody. That's what resides in our heart. This author calls on these people to obey their leaders and to submit to them. The word obey really is is another way you could translate that is to put your trust in. It's appropriate to to translate it obey, but also it it has the idea of, of having confidence in someone or putting your trust in them. More often than not in the New Testament, this word is translated in those other ways. And I think it's appropriate to think of it like that because spiritual leadership is not just a blank check given to leaders so they can make their followers do whatever they want. Case in point, I I think of, you know, those tragic examples like Jim Jones 
who led 800 people through his teaching to drink poisoned Kool-Aid in a mass suicide. 800 people lost their lives because this man taught them and led them to do so. People think of those examples, they hear of those examples, and they say, yeah, right, I'm not obeying any leader. I'll do my own thing. I'll do what's right in my own heart. In fact, I don't even need a spiritual leader. I have Jesus. Me and Jesus, we're, we're on speaking terms. Why would I need a spiritual leader when I can just follow Jesus? Notice that the author does not give any sense of defense for why we need to be under spiritual leaders. He doesn't seek to convince these people that they need to be under spiritual leaders. He just assumes they know that. There is nothing in the Bible, in the New Testament or the Old, that leads us to believe or to conclude that you can just walk with Jesus on your own with no other community around you. That is a selfish manifestation of your spiritual life. You need community, and specifically, you need community that has leadership. Obey, put your trust in your leaders, and submit to them. The second word, in my opinion, is a stronger word than the first. The first has the idea that you're putting your trust in, that you're giving them the benefit of the doubt, that you're listening uh, for your own thinking. You need to be rational and you need to be logical and you need to follow their conclusions or follow them to their conclusions. But you're allowing them to convince you. You don't just take what they say because they said it, but they take you to the Bible and they walk you through the Bible and they show you what the Bible says and they teach you what God's intentions are and you allow your mind to be convinced and those convincings will become convictions and your life will start to look more like a mature believer. But then secondly, he says, submit to them. Yield yourself to them. Open yourself up to being led by them. Don't be resistant and tight-fisted and clenched uh, in your thinking, but allow yourself to be led by them. This is what Paul said to his followers in 1 Corinthians. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. That's what the author has already said about their previous leaders. Consider their way of life and imitate their faith just as they imitated Christ. We ultimately make it our ambition to, to live a life that is pleasing to the Lord, and we need guides, spiritual guides, and people that are farther along down the path so that we can look at them and we can discern this is what that means to live for Christ. This is how I'm supposed to parent, because they're showing me, I read this in the Bible, but then I see this in their life, and I see the connection of how that comes true in real life. Obey your leaders and submit to them. He gives some motivation. For they are keeping watch over your souls. Spiritual leaders, he's not just referring to pastors. Uh, lots of different people could fit into this category of leaders. I'm using the word spiritual because clearly he's talking about a specific sphere of influence here. He's not talking about congressmen or presidents. He's talking about people that keep watch over your souls. These are spiritual leaders, church leaders, people that lead in the community of faith and help others to know the Lord. Those who speak the word of God, as he already said back in verse 7. And he reminds them that these people, these leaders, keep watch over your souls. And the imagery here, the, the idea is picked up on back in Luke chapter 2, when we, we hear of the angels coming to unlikely candidates out in the fields, keeping watch over their flocks by night. 
that quiet evening when Jesus was born, the world went on about its things, but the angels appeared to unlikely candidates out in a field keeping watch over sheep. Those sheep were sleeping. Those sheep were resting because they needed rest, but those shepherds were awake. The word itself has the imagery, the idea that you're not sleeping when others are sleeping because you're vigilant to keep watch. Shepherds had a very simple job description. They were entrusted with sheep, let's say 10 sheep, and the owner of those sheep said to the shepherds, it's your job to protect them. There's other things in this world and in this area that want to consume those sheep. Wolves and lions and cougars and everything else, and bandits as well. And it was the shepherd's job to protect them. But also, as you've probably been made aware, sheep are not the smartest creatures. And so it was the shepherd's job to take them where they needed to go, to lead them to food and to water, because they would not be able to find it on their own. And it was the shepherd who would lead them where they needed to go so they could have what they needed to survive. And these shepherds lived lonely, quiet lives, a simple existence, keeping watch over sheep that didn't even belong to them. These leaders, he says, are keeping watch over your souls, and so therefore you need to obey them, you need to trust them, and you need to submit to them or yield your life to them. Let them lead you. Again, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of the imagery, the difference between a shepherd over sheep in ancient Israel versus uh, modern context, maybe those pictures of cattle drivers, you know, the cowboys, those who drove cattle up from Texas up to, to California so they could sell them there on the meat markets. And they rode behind the cattle and they cracked whips and they moved the cows where they wanted them to go. And oftentimes that is the imagery that we have in our mind of spiritual leaders. They're driving us along, they're cracking the whip, they're moving us at a pace that, that they think is best versus the shepherd who goes before the sheep and calls to them and the sheep follow after them. It's a relationship built on trust. If the trust isn't there, the sheep will not follow. The shepherd has to spend time with the sheep in order that the sheep may know him and trust him. And the shepherd has to be kind and gracious and loving, otherwise the sheep won't come to him. I didn't say this in the first service, but I need to say this because it's vitally important. Even though the Bible says here, obey your leaders and submit to them, there are certain instances, I would say, where it's appropriate for us to remove ourselves from underneath the, the spiritual oversight of leaders. We don't just give them a blank check to, to do with our life whatever, we want, whatever they want to do. Spiritual leaders are to be vigilant. They're to have Christ's agenda first and foremost in their mind. They lead the people gently. There's two reasons maybe why you would ever have to remove yourself from spiritual leaders. The first is negligence. Leaders that just won't do what Christ has clearly told them to do. Christ has told people like me to feed his sheep not come up with clever marketing ideas, not be cool, not build a, a podcast or an internet following. God has called shepherds and God has called spiritual leaders to feed people with his word. And if men reject that, if they fail to do that, there might come a time when you need to peacefully remove yourself and say, you know what, I, I need to find real shepherding. I can't trust you because I'm not comfortable with how you're leading me and I want to follow Christ and you seem to be following a different avenue. The other reason I would say that you might have to remove yourself from underneath a spiritual leader is if they are abusive. Jesus talked about servants that he lent out 
or you put in charge of feeding uh, others in the vineyard at certain times, and then he goes away. And because he's gone for so long, these servants start to eat and drink with drunkards, and they start to beat the other servants. They start to mistreat people. And Jesus is going to come back and deal with those servants. But it's important for us to know that, that sometimes people find themselves in, in places of spiritual leadership where God did not appoint them. And they start to manifest a mean, ungodly spirit. They start to beat the sheep. And they love verses like this because it gives them justification. And they say regularly, you have to obey me. You have to submit to me. Listen, husband or anyone else in a place of leadership, if your favorite verse is, wives, submit to your husbands, you're doing it wrong. Pastors, church leaders, if your favorite verse in the Bible is, obey your leaders and submit to them, you're doing it wrong. If pastors and leaders will lead with conviction and if they will keep their eyes on Christ and if they will follow after Christ, they will be able to look behind and realize there are sheep following after them, trying to find their way to Christ. You don't have to beat the sheep. We lead by conviction, we lead by following Christ, but we lead by building trust. Christianity never advanced the gospel through wars. Did you hear me? Christianity never advanced the gospel through violence. That's Islam. Islam conquers by force. Christianity is the complete opposite. Jesus conquers by love. He offers peace and hope and security, and those who want that grasp onto it, and he loves them, and he leads them, and he guides them, and his spiritual leaders do the same. They keep watch, they're keeping watch over your souls. That's why you need to do this. But also, it says, as those who will have to give an account. In my mind, this is the verse that ought to be first and foremost in any spiritual leader's heart and mind. Rather than focusing on obey your leaders and submit to them, leaders need to focus on you're going to give an account before the chief shepherd someday. You will stand on judgment day before the Lord of heaven and he will say, how did you treat my sheep? I need to be prepared to answer that question. I need to live daily with the reality that I will stand before the God of heaven and give an account for your souls. And if I can live daily in that reality, I think I'll treat you right and I won't treat you perfect, but we'll get there together. That's my commitment to you, to live with this reality that I will stand before God, I will not stand before you, I will not stand before other shepherds, I will not stand before anyone else, I will stand before Christ, who is merciful, who is kind, who has forgiven me of all my sin, but who also has an expectation in how I serve him. You want to spot and identify good and godly leadership? Look for people that cling to these types of verses, that live in a daily sense of accountability that they serve the king of heaven. And then give them the benefit of the doubt. Don't jump on everything they say that is a little bit wrong or maybe a little bit different than someone you heard on the internet. I'll tell you plainly and up front, one of the most frustrating things as a pastor is to pour my guts out over a text of scripture and have someone say, yeah, I heard so-and-so and they said this. And my flesh wells up within me and I want to say, well, then go let them watch over your soul. I'm not saying you can't tell me what you heard on the internet. Don't 
be afraid to come to me with those things. But I'm saying this, I need you to just give me and the spiritual leaders that God has put in your life the benefit of the doubt and give us the opportunity to convince you of what we think the Bible teaches. Otherwise, you'll always be at arm's length. You'll always be unable to shepherd in some ways. We'll give an account for your soul. And then it says this, motivation here. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. There is a difference, isn't there? Parents, you know this well. When you speak to your seven-year-old and they speak back to you, Mom, you just don't understand. All the other seven in the worlds in the world have this. All the seven-year-olds do this. You just don't understand. You're old. You're like 30-something. But you as the parent keep from rolling your eyes and you think to yourself, you have no idea what you're talking about. Literally, you have no idea what you're talking about. And then you spank them. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> that, only if it's the right time. Um, but in your flesh, isn't that what you want to do? Let them do this with joy, not with groaning. The obvious example that comes to my mind as I think about the Bible is Moses. What a monumental, horrible task. I mean, in some ways, it's amazing that he was used by God in all those miraculous ways that he was able to part the Red Sea with his staff, that he was able to participate in all of those things and see them happen before his very eyes, only to go out into the wilderness and on the third day to hear people complaining, Moses, why did you bring us out here just to die? Times a million. Moses had a Herculean task of leading a bunch of stiff-necked people who refused to yield to God's plan for their life. And their frustration was not directed towards an invisible God. Their frustration was directed towards a physical man, the leader, the one whom God put in charge. Multiple times they wanted to overthrow his leadership. They tried on occasion to stir up the masses to overthrow him. And Moses never led a coalition to try and destroy them. Moses fell on his face and he cried out to the Lord of heaven to deal with these people. That's the mark of a spiritual leader. Someone who recognizes that the battle is not against flesh and blood, but the battle is spiritual. The battle is in their hearts and it's the enemy stirring up their souls against the plan of God. We're told that Moses was the meekest man in the Bible by Moses, but it must be true. It's in the Bible. But think of all that he had to endure. And of all these people, of what they saw and what they partook of, and yet they still would not obey and yield to God's plan. That is of no advantage to you. And spiritual leaders have to grit their teeth to get through ministry. When they have to wet their pillows at night with tears because people are so difficult, it's of no advantage to you. So make it your ambition to not be a problem child. To not make mine or any other pe person's job difficult in the way that you respond. It's okay to have differences of opinions. It's okay to even voice those in the right context. But I think if we're walking in the spirit, if we're walking in a spirit of humility and peace, we'll know how to do that pro appropriately. Verse 18. 
brings us to the second half of this. Really, it's just a two-point sermon. Follow your leaders and pray for them. The leader here, the, the writer of Hebrews, says to them, pray for us. In a sense, he is one of their spiritual leaders. We don't know on what level they're connected or what level they know each other, but he does say this in the next verse, uh, I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. The idea of being restored means that they were together before. Maybe he's an itinerant preacher. Maybe he's, he's a prophet that travels around and, and ministers to multiple congregations. Maybe he's a more of an apostle that's working with the other apostles to establish churches. We don't know exactly what his role is, but he knows these people and he's been with them. He's prayed with them. He's cried with them. He's worshiped with them. He's ministered the word of God to them, even as he is now through writing and he says, pray for us. Inherent in this command is this, that the author recognizes his need for people's prayer. Spiritual maturity does not mean you reach a level where you understand enough and you know enough that you can just function on your own apart from God's daily need of grace. This man recognizes that he needs grace more than ever before. In his older years as a servant of God, in his mature state as a servant of God, he recognizes, I cannot keep doing this unless you pray for me. Pray for us. He says, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience. And again, here is this weird concept. He's positive. He's certain that he has a clear conscience. He's analyzed his own heart and he knows that he's right with God and he's right with man. And so some might say, well, there you go. You can minister now. You can do your own stuff. You can function the way you want to because you're doing everything right. The command for them to pray for him comes out of the reality that he is living with a clean conscience. His confidence comes from a clean conscience. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, for our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely so toward you. Paul knew that God was with him, but he knew that because he knew he was walking in a clean conscience. He wasn't trying to minister out of a defiled conscience and assume that God is going to just somehow make it right. That's why he tells Timothy, watch your life and your doctrine closely. For in so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. The spiritual leader needs to live with a clean conscience. All of us do. But it is the, the place of confidence for the man of God who ministers the word of God. But also there is this deep recognition that without prayer, and specifically the God who answers prayer, nothing happens. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. That is their aim, that is their desire. Whether he's talking about just himself here in a plural sense or whether he's talking about him and his associates, they are desiring to honor God in everything. It's a very simple way to live and yet it keeps you in the right direction. Verse 19, he concludes this thought with these words, I urge you, the more earnestly. He's stacking up words here to try and paint this vivid picture and give this strong exhortation, do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. What I see in this verse is just simply this. If you don't pray, the spirit doesn't move. In some 
way, in God's divine plan, the sovereign God who is who is set in, in order all things from the beginning of the world, who knows the end from the beginning, somehow manifests his will through his own sovereign plan and through our faithful praying. Prayer does stuff. Jesus is the perfect high priest who makes us as worshipers worthy to come into the presence of God so that we can come into the presence of God and so that we can ask God for things and we can make requests and we can cry out to heaven knowing that he will hear us. We don't pray because we don't think it actually does anything. We betray our own insufficient theology. We think that God is just going to do whatever he wants and so it doesn't matter what we pray. But the author of scripture says, if you pray more earnestly, I know I will be restored to you more soon. This man believed that these people's prayers were effective. I don't think you understand how encouraging it is to me when I get a sincere note or when I get a sincere word from someone that says, Pastor, I just want you to know I'm praying for you. And I've received that at times in, in the most unlikely times when, when the person had no idea what was going on and my own heart was burdened. And God, through that small, simple word and through those powerful prayers, eased that burden. Pray for us. Trust us. Yield to us. And by God's grace, we will reach a place of maturity, a place of Christ-honoring maturity where we will be a benefit to the world and the people around us. This is the goal, amen? I'm reminded just as we close here of Jesus' words. As he's training his disciples, he says to them, pray to the Lord of the harvest that God would raise up workers. Jesus, the chief shepherd, the one who does know the end from the beginning, the one who made all things and holds them all together by the word of his power, calls on his disciples and us to pray to the Lord of the harvest that God would raise up workers. And that is my prayer. Let's close together. Father, as we come now to the end of this text, as we come to this time of prayer in your presence, we just want to declare we trust you. We want our hearts to be yielded to you. We as spiritual leaders want to be confident that we have a clear conscience before you. We want to be like our chief shepherd who is gentle and lowly and humble of heart. We want to be chief servants among your people, Lord. And we want your word to go forth into all the earth. Ours are days that are filled with pain and suffering around the world. And it's hard to be aware of all of it, Lord, at one time and not know how we can do anything about it but please move our hearts to pray. And we ask, Lord, that out of this very congregation, you would raise up workers for your vineyard. That the harvest would be brought in by people from this church. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing together once more. <laughs>